0: You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. I'm Koda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're
1: tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news, and I discuss road work causing delays near I-25. After that, Eliza Droder will update us us on CSU's athletics, and then you'll be hearing about the Tour de Corgi, which happened this Saturday. Then, Coda tells us about a massive oil spill in California, and we hear an episode of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. After that, I give new information on COVID-19 and explain some
0: updates on technology with information on a Facebook whistleblower. To conclude the show, I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news.
2: Hey everyone, this is Ellie reporting for KCSU and CSU Campus News. We're in our seventh week and almost halfway through our fall semester. It is also Homecoming Week, and the festivities are going to begin this Wednesday, October 6. According to Austria Kahn of the Collegian, Homecoming Week was established in 1914 to bring back alumni and carry on traditions. Unfortunately, some traditions aren't going to be carried on this year, such as the parade and festival in the Oval. But there are many other events this week, such as Get Your Green On and Friday Night Lights, October eighth. The 50-year club luncheon and, of course, the homecoming football game against San Jose State, Saturday, October 9th, will also be taking place. For more information, go to homecoming.colostate.edu. Colorado State University President Joyce McConnell tested positive for COVID-19 she announced last weekend. According to Jordan Mahaffey, President McConnell stated she was feeling fine and that she believes the COVID vaccine helped reduce her symptoms. The Associated Students of CSU held their fifth Senate meeting of the school year on September 29th. The Senate heard a presentation from Alternative Transportation Manager Aaron Fodge regarding the West Elizabeth Corridor Engineering Design Project. This project proposes a bus rapid transit on West Elizabeth Street since a high number of students live along that stretch. It would be the second MAX bus rapid transit in Fort Collins. For more information on this, visit thecollegian.com. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesday and Thursday afternoons from 4 to 5. Thanks for listening to my weekly newscast. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. And now for Ivy Winfrey with local news.
1: Hello there, I'm Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Part of the Roosevelt National Forest is now closed through October 14th as a safety measure while helicopters drop mulch in an area severely burned in last year's Cameron Peak fire. According to a Forest Service news release, the closure is north of Larimer County Road 43 around the Dunn-Raven Trailhead, Storm Mountain, and Donner Pass areas and will limit access into Rocky Mountain National Park from the North Fork Trail. Crews have large mulch piles staged near the Dunraven Trailhead, and helicopters will haul large nets of that mulch to drop on more than 700 acres in the Cameron Peak Flyer burn scar. The mulch will reduce the erosion of unstable soil that has caused repeated flash floods in the retreat area near Glenhaven. Regan Cloudman, Forest Service Public Affairs Specialist, says that the mulching dates were selected in coordination in the Colorado Parks and Wildlife to limit the impact to hunters in the area before the first deer and elk rifle season. If conditions allow, the area will reopen at least to non-motorized use after operations are completed. For updated closure information, including a map, visit www.fs.usda.gov main arp slash home a two-mile stretch of Interstate 25 will be closed for multiple nights and crews demolish the Ketcher Road Bridge near Fort Collins. According to Miles Bloomhart at the Colorado Inn, full closures of southbound I-25 from Harmony Road to Colorado 392 and northbound I-25 single-lane closures will take place from 9 p.m. October 8th to 5 a.m. on October 9th and 9 p.m. October 9th to 6 a.m. on October 10th. Detours will direct northbound I-25 traffic to use exit 262 at Colorado 392 and head east to Colorado 257, then north to Harmony Road and west to I-25. Southbound I-25 traffic will use exit 265 Harmony Road to go east on Harmony to Colorado 257, then south to Colorado 392 and west to I-25. A month long closure of Ketchner Road from Larimer County Road 5 due to the Southwest Frontage Road began Friday. The road is expected to remain closed until May. The closures are to allow for demolition of the Ketchner Road Bridge and construction of a new expanded bridge as part of the North I-25 Express Lanes project. When completed, Catcher Road over I-25 will feature a roundabout at its intersection with the Southwest Frontage Road just west of I-25. The roundabout is intended to improve safety and traffic flow issues. The expanded bridge will include increased pedestrian and bike safety with new sidewalks, pedestrian crosswalks, bike lanes in each direction, and heightened barriers on both sides of the bridge. For more information about this project, you can visit www.co.gov projects slash North I-25 slash Johnstown to Fort Collins, or you can call 720-593-1996, or send an email to North I-25 Express Lanes at gmail.com. Governor Jared Polis issued an executive order on Sunday streamlining discipline of firing state employees who don't comply with vaccine requirements. According to Alex Burness at the Denver Post, Polis also ended the last remaining executive order offering renters partial protection from eviction and directed state agencies to share more data about K-12 student exposure to COVID-19. Police temporarily suspended a section of the rules concerning the discipline of state personnel meant to speed up the firing of people found to be out of compliance with the state's order on September 30th uh, to get at least the first dose of a vaccination. The specific people targeted by the order are Colorado government, government employees who interact with vulnerable populations or populations living in congregate living settings like health facilities and prisons. He deleted a state rule requiring written notice seven days in advance of a pre-disciplinary meeting for a state employee out of compliance with vaccination requirements. The state can now go straight to the disciplinary phase, providing written notice of potential disciplinary action without having to hold a meeting first. A state, a state employee has 10 days to respond in writing to a notice of this potential action and can be fired immediately if they do not respond after that time frame. He wrote in his order, quote, the existing process would prevent, hinder, or delay the state in addressing noncompliance by state employees. State employees' noncompliance with existing COVID-19 vaccination and or testing requirements threatens the state's ability to adequately respond to and recover from the ongoing pandemic and endangers the health of fellow state workers, members of the public who interact with the state, members of vulnerable populations, and populations in congregate living settings, and the general public, end quote. The governor's order also directs the Colorado Department of Education to share with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment K-12 student information, Polis says, is, quote, necessary for public health purposes of ongoing COVID-19 investigation and disease mitigation, end quote. That information includes the name of a student's school and, quote, sufficient information about students to match that information to records in CDPHE immunization and disease control databases, Polis has declined to issue a statewide mask mandate for schools where um, in August and September, the state documented nearly 200 outbreaks. The state has struggled to convince schools and testing and students to participate in its weekly lease testing program. That's all the local news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back. It's skills to pay the bills shills.
2: And Monster Truck Hannah.
1: On 90.5 KCSU, Fort Collins.
3: My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, in the last game on September 25th, the Rams lost to Iowa in Iowa 14-24. The rushing leaders, Ajon Vivens, 17 attempts for 45 yards, with an average of 3.7 yards per carry. Quarterback Todd Centio getting some rushing yards in, 50 rushing yards on 17 attempts and one rushing touchdown. Our top receivers this week: Trey McBride, sixteen receptions for fifty-nine yards; E.J. Scott with two receptions for fifty-one; and Gary Williams with the one receiving touchdown. On the defensive side, the team had three sacks for twenty-one yards loss. Scott Panchin with seven total tackles, one point five at tackles for a four-yard loss, and one sack for a three-yard loss. Daquan Jackson having six total tackles, three tackles for fourteen yards loss. And Devon Phillips, a sack for a 10-yard loss. Once again, we hear Todd Sentio threw for 155 yards, 16 for 30 on pass attempts, with over 50% completion rate, was sacked three times, and no interceptions. In women's soccer, the girls won their game against San Jose State 2-1 with goals by Gracie Armstrong and Caitlin Abrams. Their next match will be at home against Colorado College on Friday at 3 p.m. In Wins Volleyball News, they lost their most recent away game against Fresno State, one set to three, Jackie Van Leefde leading the kills and ten and a half points to her name. Sasha Colombo had three service aces, Annie Sullivan led in total attacks, Sierra Pritchard led in assists, and Alexa Romeliotis leading in digs as always. Their next match will be Thursday night against Nevada in Nevada. In cross-country news, the most recent event, the Bell-Dillinger Invitational in Oregon in the women's division, CSU, finished second. And in the men's division, they finished sixth. Their next event will be the USSC Open later in October. In women's golf, the team placed sixth at the Badger Invitational. And in men's golf, the team placed first at the Rams' Master Invitational. Great job to the golf team. In women's tennis news, the Rams began their season at the Bedford Cup against Air Force in Colorado Springs and took home the doubles championship. In women's swim and dive, the Rams won against each individual team, including Air Force UNC and more, in Grand Junction. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get your tickets for basketball, volleyball, football, and more for Rams home events. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report.
0: Tour Corgi's 7th Annual Corgi Meetup and Parade happened this past Saturday and brought a huge crowd, connecting current corgi owners, dog lovers, and rescues to one another. The parade was a great chance for CSU students who might have been away from their dogs at home to go out and get some stress relief, and corgis weren't the only dogs there. Many dog owners brought huskies, dachshunds, bulldogs, and mutts to come socialize with people and dogs alike, some of them for the first time since the pandemic started in March 2020. Nonprofits and local businesses supporting dogs came to the event as well, with one of them being Colorado Corgi and Friends Rescue, which is located out of Denver. KCSU News stopped by. Corgi and Friends Rescue based out of Denver just to check in with them and see how they were handling the parade this year, as well as to see what their mission was and how people could learn more about adoptable corgis. Yeah. So uh, we founded this rescue uh, beginning of last year, so we're almost two years old, and last year alone we
4: uh, brought in and rescued over 160 dogs. Um, we rehabilitated them with fosters and then found them the their forever homes. Uh, we are based here in Colorado, uh, t- technically out of Denver, but we do Uh, meet with people all across the front range and uh, we don't focus on just corgis but any dogs really under 35 or 40 pounds generally and uh, we have taken some owner surrenders as well and just just helped where we can to our focus is the dogs you know and and them having a great life and uh, sometimes we sacrifice ourselves to do that and, and but we wouldn't have it any other way we we love doing it Uh, It can be really hard to let go of ones that we've had for a few weeks, you know, to get connected to them, but the moment you see how happy they are with their new family and their new yard, it just warms your heart so much, and it it just gives me a reason to keep doing it. And my, my wife and I were both uh, founding board members and we volunteer for as well. We're not-for-profit. Um, we have a Facebook and a website.
0: And then what do you think your favorite part of coming to Tor de Corgi to show God. the rescuable dogs? Oh man, aside from seeing all
4: the corgis,
0: um, being able to meet so many other
4: dog lovers and spread the word, uh, just light up, light up everyone's lives with the, either the merchandise or, or being able to meet some of our fosters that we have with us as well. Um, this is my first time at Tour de Corgi, personally, and uh, it was much bigger and, and more awesome than I was expecting. This is pretty incredible. I'll
0: definitely be here next time. Of the many attendants at Tour de Corgi, some had traveled as far as 200 miles, with one family, Lisa, Quinn, and their dog, Lucy, came all the way from Northwest Kansas. Do you tend to go through adoption or do you go to reputable breeders? Um, The people that we've gotten our corgis from so far have been um, family friends or
2: friends of a friend, so they're people that we kind of know and they just do it out of their home or a farm.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, What do you think your favorite thing of the parade was this year? Um, I don't know. I loved all the different costumes. It's so cute to see everybody get dressed up. (laughs) Is there anything that you want people to know about Torte de Corgi if they want to go next year? Um,
4: I don't know, it's a fun event. Come to be willing to let everybody pet your dog and interact with people and have a good time.
0: In addition to getting to talk with some amazing owners and some amazing businesses and nonprofits working to serve corgis and similar animals, I also got to hear from some of the dogs themselves. Those sniffs came from some very cute corgis, just curious about what was happening with my microphone. As soon as they finished sniffing the mic and giving their thoughts on toward a corgi, they offered up their bellies to get rubbed in the grass nearby where the parade was happening. Plenty of college students coming from CSU, especially those living in the dorms, Found themselves right up in front of the corgis. A couple of us almost got peed on by a dog after sitting next to a fire hydrant, but others just got the good parts and got to give treats to dogs, pet them, and just experience the amazing thing that is Torta Corgi. Since Torta Corgi occurred virtually last year, many people were unable to really enjoy the full event. As it returned this year, it brought a massive crowd into Old Town it being actually pretty difficult to find any parking. A bulldog I was sitting pretty close to actually kept trying to play with every single corgi in the parade, just trying to have as much fun as he could while he was waiting for all of them to pass through. to offering spots for corky rescues, a pet pantry also came by to make sure that all people knew that they would have a place to feed their dog if anything ever happened. Haley Stegall from the Collegian talked about the Four Pets Pantry in her article which comes out by this Thursday and in the print edition of the Collegian. And Four Paws Pet Pantry offers assistance to people that have a necessity to get animal food to their creatures. Regularly, they find themselves donating tons of dog food and cat food to animals in need. Colorado Corgis and Friends Rescue, who we heard from a little bit earlier in the show, can be followed at Colorado Corgis and Friends on Instagram, all one word, or by visiting their website at corgisandfriends.com. Both of these options will show you the adoptable corgis available, as well as the adoptable other animals of similar sizes. Torta Corgi allows for people to have a great time while also supporting causes that directly benefits the dogs involved. In addition to offering spots for corky rescues, a pet pantry also came by to make sure that all people knew that they would have a place to feed their dog if anything ever happened. Haley Stegall from The Collegian talked about the Four Pets Pantry in her article which comes out by this Thursday and in the print edition of The Collegian. And Four Paws Pet Pantry offers assistance to people that have a necessity to get animal food to their creatures. Regularly they find themselves donating tons of dog food and cat food to animals in need. Colorado Corgis and Friends Rescue, who we heard from a little bit earlier in the show, can be followed at Colorado Corgis and Friends on Instagram, all one word, or by visiting their website at corgisandfriends.com. Both of these options will show you the adoptable corgis available, as well as the adoptable other animals of similar sizes. Torta Corgi allows for people to have a great time while also supporting causes that directly benefits the dogs involved. To learn more about Torta Corgi, you can visit Tordekorgi.org. That is all for this segment of the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Kota Babcock.
2: can't deal listening to the same three songs anymore.
5: Take out your phone and let me put you on to something different.
2: Which is KCSU.
5: The student-run radio station at CSU makes it easy. They're on the TuneIn app or you can stream them live on kcsufm.com and browse some of their articles or podcasts.
2: What if my phone is from ninth grade? Can I still get TuneIn?
5: You can find TuneIn on Google Play or the App Store. Put some variety on your playlist only at KCSU.
0: And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard my piece on Tour de Corgi. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. Southern California's coast is now being hit by a massive oil spill in the Pacific, with over 120,000 gallons in the ocean. According to Joe Hernandez at National Public Radio, the spill is at least 13 miles in size. Local politicians and experts in Orange County say the damage is irreversible, and in the short term, residents will deal with odors and visible oil. The cause of the spill hadn't been identified as of Monday and is under investigation by the U.S. Coast Guard. Orange County Supervisor Katrina Foley says the spill comes from Platform Ellie, an offshore oil rig owned by Beta Offshore. Beta Offshore is assisting the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Coast Guard in their investigation. Huntington Beach closed, and Newport Beach is bracing for the oil spill to hit there as well. The State Director of Environment California, Laura Dehan, said, quote, the oils from the spill has already washed up onto, Hun- onto Huntington Beach and the Talbert Marsh wetlands, an area that's home to vibrant bird life, including great blue herons, pelicans, and endangered California's least terrans, which migrate up the Pacific coast. The coast is also a habitat for a myriad non-avian marine life. From fish that we eat, such as tuna and sea bass, to sea turtles, dolphins, and whales, end quote dead animals have already been found within oil slicks. A report released this weekend shows that world leaders, politicians, celebrities, and other wealthy and powerful people have been beneficiaries of secret investment accounts in yachts, mansions, and other assets. According to Michael Liedke and Jonathan Matisse at the Associated Press, the report was conducted by 600 journalists across 117 countries. And some of the elites benefiting from these secret financial dealings include former UK Prime Minister... Tony Blair, Russian President Vladimir Putin, and Robert T. Brockman, the former CEO of Reynolds & Reynolds. These accounts were created to evade taxes. British charity consortium Oxfam International said of the report, called the Pandora Papers, quote, This is where our missing hospitals are. This is where the pay packets sit of all the extra teachers and firefighters and public servants we need. Whenever a politician or business leader claims there is no money to pay for climate damage and innovation... For more and better jobs, for a fair post-COVID recovery, for more overseas aid, they know where to look, end quote. The journalists behind the Pandora Papers also researched to author the Panama Papers project in 2016. The released files contain nearly three terabytes of data with records dating back to the 1970s. The family of Henrietta Lacks is suing a pharmaceutical company for profiting off of her cells. According to Ryan W. Miller at USA Today, the Henrietta Lacks cells, also known as the HeLa cells, were taken from a black woman who was receiving treatment at Johns Hopkins University for cancer in the 1950s. The cells were taken without her consent or the consent of her family while she was dying in a segregated hospital. Thermo Fisher Scientific is the company being sued by the Lacks family, and civil rights attorney Ben Crump held a press conference with the family Monday. According to CBS Baltimore's Paul Gessler, Lax's grandson Al- Alfred Carter said, quote, no longer will we let outside entities control the narrative and dictate what's going on with this family, end quote. Lax was immortalized by the, by the book and the movie, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lax, written by Rebecca Sloot with the help of one of Lax's children, which follows the story of Lax's life as well as the difficulties her family experienced after her death. Scloot's support and distribution of the Lax family story gave a name to the original owner of the HeLa cells and helped normalize conversations around racism in a medical setting. New York City teachers and school staff members are now expected to be vaccinated in order to enter school buildings this week. According to Karen Matthews of the Associated Press, unvaccinated employees are now on unpaid leave and the city has substitutes available in the meantime. Mayor Bill de Blasio gave his final warning that vaccines would be required last week, and says 93% of teachers received at least one shot of a vaccine, with nearly 100% of principals doing the same. New York City is not offering remote instruction except in extreme cases. There is no test-out option for the vaccination requirement, but it does allow for medical and religious exemptions. The mandate was expected to start last week, but a federal appeals court pushed it back to this Monday. That's all for National News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Now KCSU News is proud to present a feature of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler in which he talks about the foundations of baseball, the origins of baseball, and today, the classic original stadiums of Major League Baseball. So I'll let him get into it, but stay tuned here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
5: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 27 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Well, here we are. There are only four games left in the season at the time of recording this episode. And, for the most part, the playoffs are just about figured out. In the National League, the Giants, Brewers, and Braves have either already clinched the division, or will in the next day or two, and the National League wildcard will be played between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the St. Louis Cardinals. On the path to the second wildcard spot, the Cardinals won 17 straight ball games, the most in Major League history since the Indians won 22 games in a row in 2017. So, in other words, talk about a team getting hot at the right time. Now, another team that is also getting hot at the right time, on the American League side that is, is the Seattle Mariners, who, as of right now, are just a half game back on the Boston Red Sox for the second wildcard spot. Otherwise, the Yankees have a lead of a game in the first wildcard spot, but it's still going to be a pretty scary next couple of games for them, as the Toronto Blue Jays are also just a game out of the wildcard as well. The AL wildcard is literally coming down to the wire. The Red Sox have one last game in Baltimore before playing the Washington Nationals in three games. The Yankees have one more game against the Blue Jays before playing three against the Rays, which, let's be honest, will be the ultimate test for them. The Mariners have three games against the Angels, and the Blue Jays play the Orioles three times after that final game with the Yankees. So in other words, a lot could happen in the next couple of days. Otherwise the AL division leaders are just about all locked up as well with the Rays claiming the number one overall seed, along with the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. Now, I do have to say, I think that this is going to be a very exciting playoffs, really just in general, but the last few days of the season are just going to add so much more excitement to the entire thing. Anyway, in last week's episode, we talked about the real origins of baseball. Well at least the story that we've discovered up to this point. After debunking some of the myths that are out there and surfacing much more recent evidence, we found that baseball may not have come from just one place at one time, but more than likely from a few different variations around the United States, with a bit of influence coming through in all of those cases. Now, it's a hard question to tackle, and could take an entire lifetime's worth of research and investigation for that matter to truly figure out the actual accurate origins of the game of baseball. So instead, we're just going to move on to the next thing. (laughs) So in this week's episode, I want to talk about stadiums. Yes, the present-day coliseums, the field of play, the best-kept grass you'll ever see. But... More specifically, I want to talk about old stadiums, stadiums that have now either been torn down for something newer or are being used for something else while the team relocates somewhere else. So today, we're going to talk about these classic baseball stadiums. In the history of the MLB, there have been around 160-ish different baseball parks that have housed MLB teams since the start of the major leagues. A lot of the stadiums in this list were only used for a few years, maybe one or two, as teams kind of moved around and changed names and whatnot, but I think one of the bigger things that honestly happened a lot was the owners of the fields would decide to demolish it after a season, maybe two seasons, and repurpose the space into something else, as still... In a lot of these cases, America was still growing. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about a few that have stood the test of time and embedded themselves deep into the memories of fans and the history books for some time to come. First, let's talk about one of my personal favorite parks, known as the Polo Grounds. Now, before I start this, know that before 1958, ballparks weren't restricted to dimensions, as well as they are now. There were no rules saying that left field and right field had to be at least a certain distance, and that's definitely the case for the polo grounds. You see, there were four iterations of the polo grounds where the New York Giants, uh, not the football team by the way, but the baseball team New York Giants, played. The first three were fairly normal with fairly normal dimensions, However, when the third iteration of the Polo Grounds burnt down, a new, very different Polo Grounds rose. Now, this one used a lot of the surviving wooden bleachers and much of the steel structure as the first, since the fire didn't burn down the entire stadium, but, you know, since the season was just getting underway by the time that the fire happened, construction continued to take place all throughout the season and much of the time during baseball games. Once a second deck was added to the field, it was given a new nickname, The Bathtub, <laughs> which is a really good nickname. Now, if you think about a bathtub, it's not really shaped much like a baseball field, is it? And that's kind of why this stadium was so weird. You see, the left field wall sat 279 feet from home plate, while the right field wall sat just 258 feet from home plate. Now, for context, with the institution of this 1958 field dimension rules, the minimum allowed distance for the left and right field walls was set at 325 feet. Now that's quite a bit further than what the polo grounds had as their walls. Center field formed More of a rectangle than it was a diamond, as the wall went straight into the outfield until it reached 450 feet from home plate in, I guess what you could say was like the back left center field, (laughs) and then 449 feet in the back right center field. Straightaway center field extended even further than that, as it contained another little bump out where the scoreboard was placed. Therefore, straightaway center field was at 483 feet. Now, there have only been a handful of 500 foot home runs in the entire history of baseball. So, hitting one out that far was quite a challenge, as you can imagine. The stadium is so important to the history of baseball, however, as in, it's the stadium that had two of the biggest plays in the history of baseball. Firstly, have you ever seen the famous photo, or I guess the video, of Willie Mays making that spectacular over-the-shoulder catch right in front of the batter's eye in the World Series? That was at the polo grounds. You see, any other stadium, and that ball probably would have been gone, but since the dimensions of the polo grounds were so big, Mays caught up to it. And honestly, it's pretty impressive that he even caught up to it in the first place. And what about, well, not the actual shot heard around the world, but, but the baseball version of the shot heard around the world, which was a walk-off home run that won the National League pennant for the Giants as they defeated the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, that also happened at the Polo Grounds, right over that left field fence, so it was a line drive home run. The next one that I want to talk about deals with the fact that, oftentimes, before land became more available and there was more funding, MLB teams would have to share the field with NFL teams. For example, the Broncos and the Rockies had to share Mile High Stadium before Coors Field was built. The Seattle Seahawks and the Seattle Mariners shared the Kingdome, which was also home to the Seattle Supersonics until 1985. And even more recently than that, the Oakland Athletics shared the Oakland Coliseum with the now Las Vegas Raiders all the way up until 2016. There's actually been 25 different fields that were all used for this reason in the history of the MLB slash NFL. But I want to talk about the Metrodome. Now, the Metrodome was actually around for a good amount of time, as it was demolished just in 2014. The entire idea behind the construction of this stadium came from the need for more seats for the Minnesota Vikings, the football team, and a roof to protect the Twins and the Vikings from the harsh Minnesota weather. And honestly, that's one of the coolest parts about the stadium, is that it had a roof. And it's actually really funny looking at the stadium as it had a fully turf infield with little kind of dirt islands, I guess you could say, that contained the four bases and the pitching mound all at their respective spots. Now, I'm not entirely sure, but just looking at pictures, it kind of seemed like these dirt islands that contained the bases could actually be lifted out of the ground, giving the Vikings a full-sized, unobstructed field. Now, one of the biggest challenges with this stadium was trying to figure out how a rectangular field could fit inside of a diamond. Fasler Rahman Khan, the main architect for the project, had a pretty good solution. You see, the stadium had a huge set of fold-out bleachers in right field that would leak into the outfield uh, to give more seating capacity. That meant, however, that When there was a baseball game going on, the entire right field fence was just a huge wall of seats. A a blue monster, if you will. Now, for this reason, no fans could sit out in right field, unless they went up to the second deck, which sat right above the huge blue wall of seats. Because of this, however, the right field wall sat just 327 feet from home plate, but it kind of swung out towards center field more to meet center field at about 408 feet oh and do you remember when i said that it had a roof well at one point in december of 2010 it actually collapsed (laughs) due to the weight of the snow that had come from a day-long snowstorm before it they did end up rebuilding it before they tore it down but still it's kind of crazy now the final stadium that i want to talk about is called griffith stadium Now, this stadium is another kind of weird one, as the field dimensions are really just all over the place. The former home of the Washington Senators, who, by the way, are now the Twins, had an outfield fence much like the one in the new Globe Life Park. Again, all over the place. It had six different distances from home plate, with no smooth lines or smooth connections anywhere. The right field fence started at 320 feet, right next to the foul pole. As you move towards center field, the wall was pushed out to 373 feet, before then meeting another wall that would be where the bullpen was for one of the two teams. Then from the bullpen sat another section that, again, crouched into the field. And then at the corner of these two, I guess, sections that are encroaching the outfield was a 438-foot fence. (laughs) Moving into left field, or I guess more left center field, the wall was at 421 feet before taking a huge cut back into the infield, or the outfield rather, at 391 feet. But by the time that you reach the left field foul pole, the wall was pushed back 405 feet to left field. So it was kind of formed as like a really weird triangle in left field. Not only that, but if you were a righty and you pulled the ball, well, (laughs) good luck getting one out in left field. The entire wall in right field actually was 30 feet above the field, making sure that really no balls ever left. And that's why the stadium is so crazy. I mean, very few home runs were ever hit at this stadium since you either had to hit it more than 30 feet in the air after the ball had already traveled 370 plus feet, or you had to pull it so hard that it went over 400 feet in any direction to hopefully get it to leave. So needless to say, yeah, no, not too many home runs were hit here. However, to some sluggers like Josh Gibson, Mickey Mantle, Harmon Killebrew, Larry Dobb and Babe Ruth, the kind of outlandish dimensions of the field were no match. Apparently, there were only three reported instances of a player hitting a home run over the left field bleachers, some 500 feet or so. Mickey Mantle did it once, and Josh Gibson did it twice. Babe Ruth and Larry Dobby each had home runs that went well over the 500-foot mark at this stadium. And I feel like learning about this and doing research about this stadium really puts into perspective how incredible of hitters these guys really were. I mean, they could have played on a 500-foot field and still found a way to get it out of the stadium. Now, I'm really only scratching the surface of these old classic stadiums. And the history behind each one of these stadiums mentioned here and beyond is honestly limitless. But I think that these are some of the more weird ones. So in next week's episode, we're going to talk about some of the most controversial baseball games ever played. You see, there are a lot of well-fought baseball games in the history of the major leagues, but occasionally there's a game that was so bad that it cements itself in the history books really for all the wrong reasons. We'll talk about bad calls, bad plays, and the unlikeliest and unluckiest moments to ever happen in the major leagues.
0: That was Anton Schindler with his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. You can check that out on Spotify by searching Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler or by visiting kcsufm.com and navigating to our podcast section. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins.
1: Hey, this is Neil from War Tapes, and you're listening to KCSU 90.5 FM, your radio.
0: And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports that 88% of CSU's on-campus students are vaccinated against COVID-19, along with nearly 87% of employees. The university reports over 3,600 cases of COVID-19 since reporting began. And Monday, five students and one employee tested positive for COVID-19. To submit your vaccine information or schedule a twice-weekly screening, visit covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings, regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. Postpone all gatherings if possible and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports over 36,000 cases of COVID-19, along with nearly 300 deaths due to COVID. Additionally, the county shows a case rate of over 200 cases per 100,000 residents in the past week, and 59 COVID-19 patients are currently in local hospitals. Intensive care unit utilization is at 98%, meaning that there's very little room to treat critical condition patients that arrive due to car accidents or other non-COVID-related incidents. New hospitalizations are going down in the county overall, but hospitals are still filled up. The state of Colorado reports nearly 680,000 cases and almost 8,000 deaths due to COVID-19. Across the state, over 3.4 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. The state extended its larger COVID-19 vaccination sites and added booster shots into its data. For more information, visit covid19.colorado.gov. National Public Radio reports over 43.6 million cases of COVID-19 with a daily increase of around 107,000. Additionally, over 700,000 have died across the country from COVID-19 with an average of over 1,800 each day. In the past two weeks, cases decreased by 27% while deaths decreased by 7%. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment the Centers for Disease Control, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. to Babcock once again, and this is tech news for October 5th. A former manager at Facebook says the company chose its own interests over public safety in the case of the Capitol riots on January 6th. According to David Bauer and Michael Liedka at the Associated Press, data scientist Francis Haugen recently originally filed complaints about the social media platform anonymously, but came out saying, quote, Facebook over and over again has shown it chooses profit over safety, end quote. She also said Facebook turned off safeguards intended to remove misinformation from the site following the election of President Joe Biden, potentially increasing the spread of access people had to have have plans for the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Facebook's revenue doubled in the past three years from $56 billion in 2018 to an expected $119 billion by the end of 2021. Prior to Hagen's statements on a 60-minute interview, one Facebook executive claimed that her allegations were misleading when it came to how the company operates, saying that they didn't inherently cause political polarization after the election. While we're still on the topic of Facebook, the social media company faced an outage on all their platforms for multiple hours Monday. According to Frank Bejac and Barbara Ortute at the Associated Press, the outage hit Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. The outage began Monday at 11.40 in the morning Eastern Time, at which point executives were already facing the crisis described in the previous story as whistleblower Haugen prepared to testify against the company. YouTube announced a ban on all content spreading COVID-19 and vaccine misinformation. According to Sharon Pruitt-Young at National Public Radio, YouTube's current community guidelines already ban the spread of any medical misinformation, but this policy allows for currently administered but not FDA-approved vaccines to be included in those protections. YouTube said in a blog post, quote, we've we've steadily seen false claims about the coronavirus vaccines spill over into misinformation about vaccines in general, and we're now at a point where it's more important than ever to expand the work we started with with COVID-19 to other vaccines, end quote. Last week, the company took down two German-language channels run by Russian state media RT over COVID-19 misinformation, and now YouTube is working with this new policy to remove false content saying any approved vaccine isn't safe for human use. Even with these rules, users are still allowed to share personal vaccine experiences, although they can't routinely encourage vaccine hesitancy. Pages formerly run by prominent opponents of vaccines have already been taken down. Ford and Amazon-backed electric vehicle company Rivian filed to go public under trades with NASDAQ. According to Kim Lyons of The Verge, it originally filed confidentially with the Securities and Exchange Commission in August, but chose to go public on Friday last week. As the company is still developing, they say that they haven't received any significant revenue based on sales yet. In their filing to go public, it says that vehicle production and distribution started last month for its electric pickup truck, the R1T. Rivian intends to launch their SUV model, R1S, this December, with customers paying deposits of $1,000 for pre-order. Rivian vehicles are expected to be used by Amazon for delivery, which owns a portion of the company. These vehicles, which should also be released in December, will be exclusive to Amazon for the first four years that they're in use. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
1: Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes things need to be a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. Scientists are using lasers to determine the weight of bears from a distance. According to Rachel Metz at CNN, the idea for the laser scale came in 2018 after Joel Cusick, an employee for National Park Service's Alaska office, aimed a laser scanner at a bear he was watching. Custic says he used a terrestrial litter scanner, used probably best known for its use in autonomous vehicles. A litter scanner sends out millions of pulses of infrared light and measures how long it takes for them to return after hitting an object, such as a bear. These measurements form a point cloud that can then be used to build a three-dimensional map of the object. In a matter of seconds, Cusick could see what looked like pinpoints compromising the bear's rear on a tablet linked to the scanner. Computer software later processed the scan, creating a 3D model that could be used to determine the width of the bear's behind. That moment led to a multi-year effort to non-intrusively use litter scanners to estimate the volumes of and from, from that determine the weight of bears, which may help biologists understand more about animals' health. Lindsay Magapane, an Anchorage-based polar bear biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, says that, quote, a huge, huge upside of this method is it's non-invasive. We don't have to capture animals. It's a lot, lot less logistically challenging for us as well, end quote. It's currently impossible to know how accurate this method is, but Magapane is hoping to validate the scanning technology by partnering with zoos to scan captive polar bears, whose weights are known since they can be trained to step on scales. Those known weights could be compared with weights derived from 3D scans of the bears. Accuracy aside, Kustik said the results have been consistent. Last year, for instance, he and his colleagues used about 10 scans taken over several days of a bear known as 747. Two people independently estimate 747's weight from each scan, yielding 20 estimates that averaged 1,416 pounds. Each of the individual estimates were within about 100 pounds, Kustik said, and the difference average... Was an eight pound difference from the bear's heft in 2019. A ninja with a sword attacked a U.S. Army Special Operations Unit in California. According to Bill Chappell at National Public Radio, the incident occurred a little after 1 a.m. on September 18th when authorities in Ridgecrest, California, got word of a sword wielding man dressed as a ninja on the loose in the Inco Turn Airport in Kern County. Just north of Los Angeles, the Kern County Sheriff's Office says Kern's sheriff's deputies found, quote, the suspect has assaulted a victim at the scene with a sword and thrown a rock through a hangar window, adding an additional hitting an additional victim in the head, end quote. The victims are member of the 160th Special Operations Aviate Regiment, SOAR, according to the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which states that the military personnel, personnel were at the airport as a part of training exercises. The incident report describes how a staff sergeant was smoking a late-night cigarette near an airport hangar when... Quote, an unknown person wearing full ninja garb approached him with a question, asking, quote, do you know who I am and do you know where my family is before attacking the sergeant with the sword? The sergeant ran, jumped a fence, and reached a building where he joined others from his company, and he and a captain locked the doors and called 911. The assailant kicked and punched doors and windows, according to the report, which has redacted the service members' names. Police officers located the suspect on a nearby road, but the man, quote, refused to follow commands and brandished the sword at deputies, the sheriff's office said. Projectile rounds were used, but were ineffective, it added. Instead, the man ran. When deputies used a taser on him, he dropped the sword, and deputies were able to take him into custody. He was identified as Gino Rivera, 35 years old. The Sheriff's Office says Rivera was arrested for attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, brandishing a weapon, brandishing a weapon with the intent to resist or prevent an arrest, along with vandalism and obstructing or delaying a peace officer in the performance of their duties. The incident report says both the sergeant and captain required stitches for their wounds but were cleared to return to duty. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. Today,
0: we saw warm and sunny skies with a high of 81 and a low of 47. Moving into Wednesday, things are going to cool down a bit as clouds roll in with a high of 78 and a low of 47, with a 10% chance of rain. Thursday is just about identical with a high of 78 and a low of 48, although there won't be any chance of rain. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel
1: and that's all for today we just wanted to thank damien castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now
0: we'd like to thank our guests today as well as portia cook thomas taylor stephanie keel stevie jones hannah copeland addison lambert elliot hutchinson eric Zhang, brennan cole lindsey johnson eliza Droder, maddie erskine samuel bailey ben krueger ben haney anna schwabe Marie Tangstley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you.
1: And I'd like to thank
0: you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy.
1: And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you.
0: And with that, we'll see you next time.